Lord God, we can scarcely imagine what that scene must have been like. The mixture of terror and joy. And we pray that we may be uh, struck again by the good news of Jesus in such a way that our lives are renewed in joy and we are made more effective to display that joy to the world around. Amen. Well, what I I want to do tonight is simple. I want to explain to you the gospel, the good news of Jesus according to John. More precisely, the good news of Jesus according to Jesus in John's gospel. Now, some of you, uh, I imagine some of us, think we already know it. If I were to stop the sermon and invite you to say to your neighbor in one minute what the gospel is, you would be fine about that. Others are panicking slightly in case I do it, but I'm not going to. It's never helpful when preachers take the approach that everything you know is wrong. I put that that line into Google and it told me that everything I know about Hamas, about Ebola, about learning style, about statistical monitoring, and about human rights is wrong. And that was just the first five hits. But Christian learning happens in different places. When I was at school, uh, we learned uh, in our physics classes about Newtonian physics, you know, the laws of action and reaction and motion and all that kind of thing. And I used to get very frustrated because the things that were supposed to vibrate in water and make waves, which went backwards and forwards across trays, never came back the way they were supposed to. And uh, the experiment was always a complete waste of time, and it led to the teacher at the front saying, never mind what actually happened, this is what was supposed to happen. (laughs) Uh, And uh, this was, what, the 60s and 70s? So I I already knew that there was a more interesting physics out there that we could be taught. If we weren't going to do any of the experimental stuff that didn't work anyway, we might as well get on with Einstein, because Einstein was interesting. Uh, This was before quantum physics took over, uh, and then even if I'd learned that, that would have been useless. But the, the, the learning that we start with isn't, is sometimes simplified so that we kind of get it. And the same can be true of Christian learning. We may have picked things up in Sunday school, even if we may say so, in youth groups. Uh, there may be books and courses where we've picked up bits and pieces along the way. It's not always from Scripture. And sometimes we need a big jolt to shock us out of those simplicities that we may have learned on another occasion. Over the last uh, summer, uh, this church was involved with a big campaign in Norfolk called Who Cares? That campaign uh, went to uh, as many as it could reach, and simply asked the question, what hurts the most? 
and asked for responses, which were anonymous. They were written down, put in a, a box, and then analysed later. Across Norfolk, there were, I think, 18,583 responses. We ourselves in this parish were responsible for 988 of those. And a fairly standard pattern emerged across Norfolk, which was shared in our own area. Injustice, loneliness, breakup, parents and children stress, fear. There were some uh, interesting figures that emerged when comparing one thing with another. So, for example, women were twice as likely as men to say that what hurt the most was loneliness. Those under 18 were twice as likely as any other single age group to say that abuse was a factor in their lives. In every single age category, though, and in both genders, the dominant anxiety, the dominant hurt was death. I can't comment on the 18,000 plus, but I can certainly say of our 988 that not one person, not one person, when asked what hurts the most, said sin. Doesn't surprise me. Wonder if it surprises you. And yet I would guess that sin figures pretty largely in the Christian learning about the gospel that we've picked up. If I'd given you a minute to talk to each other, a good number of you would have said, sin is the problem and Jesus is the answer. So why do I want to shock and jolt you? Because I reckon that we live in a hurting world and no one understands us when we say the problem is sin. Which is not to say that that answer is wrong. It's just that nobody understands it. And I reckon that John completely gets that. He gets that problem, that challenge. Why does he write? Whenever we're in John's Gospel, it's worth flicking. If you can do it now if you want, but we'll come back to it again and again. John chapter 20, verse 31 why does he write? Because there's lots of books, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. Now, I, I guess we knew that. It's echoed in our reading tonight. He who believes in me will live even though he dies, and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Life, belief, together. Notice that. We hear it and we don't think it's odd because it's the Bible and the Bible, we kind of expect it to come in certain phrases. But there is no sin in it. There's no forgiveness of sins in it. Believing means life. And that is echoed across the whole of John's Gospel. There are only 22 times in the New International Version that you have in front of you, uh, 22 times in John's Gospel, when John writes, sin, sins, sinning, sinned. And eight of those are in one chapter, chapter 9, and we covered that last week. 
far more common in John's Gospel, is the language of death and life. The word life comes 42 times. And that's without counting uh, lived, living, uh, lives. And our story of the raising of Lazarus in chapter 11 is one of the great moments when life, the message of life is to the fore. If you've closed your books, do open them again at page 1078. I had never really seen the interactions in this story with Martha and Mary as clearly as I have this time. And those interactions really matter. Because what Martha and Mary are involved in, with completely different characters, as you'd expect if you know Martha and Mary from Luke's Gospel, Martha's the one who runs out to Jesus, Mary stays at home, uh, Martha has the, the sort of first bit of conversation, Mary comes, comes later. They kind of parallel Peter and John, almost. And they have a kind of desperation about them. But with it, a kind of unbelief. They are very, very different characters. But both of them say, both of them say, in verses 21 and then uh, quite a bit later in verse 32... Lord, if you, if you had only been here, our brother Lazarus would not have died. That matters, that they say that. They have faith, these women. They have faith to believe, I guess based on his other ministry, that Jesus could have prevented the death of Lazarus but they have nothing beyond that horizon. Something obviously terminal has happened to their faith as well as to the life of their brother. And the others, uh, of course, also say the same. Verse 37, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying? It is what I can only think of as an entirely reasonable intensity of the refusal to believe. After all, which one of us would believe? Faced uh, with the reality that Martha, who's ever practical... Uh, says in verse 39, by this time there's a bad odour, for he's been there four days. I think if I remember rightly, King James Version actually says he stinketh at that point. And some of you are nodding because you remember remember that. I wish it still said he stinketh. It would, it would kind of convey much more Martha's uh, character. So what we've got is these two women who have got what what we can only look at and sympathize with as a completely understandable refusal to go beyond what they say. If you'd, if you'd been here, he wouldn't have died. Imagine the pain of that. If your friend Jesus had only turned up, your brother would be alive. Now, some of you have lost people dear to you. Fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, maybe even children. If Jesus had turned up, they wouldn't have died. 
we cannot blame Martha and Mary. And Mike absolutely caught the mood of the passage when in verses 23 and 24, Jesus rehearses with Martha the kind of the faith that she's got up to now. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again, Martha answered, and you can hear her shrugging. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, he'll, he'll rise again at the resurrection at the last day, because that's what we've been heard, to, that's what we've been taught to say, and we kind of understand that. But right now, it's no help, Jesus. It's no help at all. They can see only what has happened. They cannot see beyond it. Even though they may have some confidence that he will rise again one day. But get this. Jesus only ever really has one gift to give. And that is life. It was true then, it's true now. All these good, dear mourners who gather around Mary and Martha, they're there in verses 19, 31, 33, 36, 45, just outside our passage. They're doing good and kind and caring things. These are people you would want in your church. They're being supportive. They're visiting. They are bearing the pain of others. They are the people needed in any Christian community, but they entirely miss the point. And that point is there in verse 25. Martha, I am the resurrection. I am the life. What is going on in front of our eyes in chapter 11 is it's more than a painting, it's a drama. It's a drama of what forgiveness should feel like. How many of us have learned our Sunday school lessons that the gospel is forgiveness of sins and we've heard that to mean, oh, that means life's okay again. How many of us have been through courses and learned that the gospel is forgiveness of sins and discovered that it's, it means life is, has a, about it a, a slightly better normalness to it. But we read this story and we know that what it should feel like to have sins forgiven is to be able to say with Lazarus, I was dead, but now I am alive. Now, I don't know about you, but it hasn't felt like that for me today or for some of this week. And I do not have inside me a, a believing muscle that I can squeeze until it does feel like that. I was dead, but I'm alive. And that leaves me thinking, well, what, how, how, does one, how does one get there? And I thought, well, maybe it's not about the feeling creating the reality. Maybe it's about the reality creating the feeling. What if I lived and you lived as though it did feel 
like you were dead, but you are now alive. Yes, of course, there would still be sickness and sin and heartache and failure. But if I acted, even today, as though nothing could take away my life, as though what Jesus says is true, he who believes in me, though he die, will live. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Die permanently, he means. If I acted as though nothing could take away those words and that life, how radical would my life be? Or yours? How radical would we all be together if every single one of us went out from that door this evening knowing that nothing could take our life away? Because the cross of Jesus has already taken it away and now nothing in heaven and earth, can finally touch us. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die, die permanently. What if every one of us breathed and lived out the answer to death, which was in every age category in both genders the single greatest issue that came out of what what hurts the most? We are not here glumly waiting until the end. Our songs of praise are not meant to be a kind of whistling in the dark. And that's what strikes me more than ever it has about Martha and Mary in this story tonight and their friends. They are living without any hope that could make a difference in their lives. And my fear is that we may be living as those with a theoretical knowledge that our sins have been forgiven, but actually without life, without the practical knowledge that if our sins are forgiven, then the whole business of sin means death is behind us, and life is our portion forever, and whoever lives and believes in me shall never die permanently. When you try to think what is the gospel to tell it to others, or just thinking about your awareness of it, has it ever struck you how odd the resurrection is? Many believers behave as though in practice Jesus died and then rose straight to heaven. As though his resurrection happened in some spiritual realm. Forgetting that it is in this world that Jesus is raised to life as Lord. It is in this world that life is made available. Not just a life up there at the right hand of God. Why does Jesus delay going to see Lazarus? Uh, We were told it was a puzzling factor. And here we're told in verse 15, For your sake I am glad I was not there, says Jesus, so that you may believe. Because believing means life. And if you believed, according to verse 40, you would see the glory of God. Listen to Jesus here in John's Gospel. Please do. Listen to him here 
and you will not come away with a neat and tidy belief in a theory about sin and how it is dealt with. It's important to understand that Jesus does deal with sin at the cross. What we learned in Sunday school is not wrong. It's not true that everything you know is wrong. But John 11 tells us in an adult and grown-up way what dealing with sin and death feels like. It feels like life. God forgive us if when we set out to live and to explain the gospel, it comes across as anything lesser than life itself. Well, we're done. And in a moment, Janet is going to come. Do come up, Janet, and lead our prayers. But let's spend a moment first in quiet, and then before Janet takes over, I'll lead us in a short prayer. Lord God, famously, this reading tonight contains the shortest verse in the Bible. Jesus wept. Jesus wept when he saw what death had done, what sin has done in the world to those he loves and cares for. Please, Lord, let Jesus not be weeping over us. Let him not be weeping over unbelief or over the kind of belief that is neat and tidy but it doesn't actually make a difference. May we live lives that bring a smile of joy to the face of our Lord because he knows that we live out of confidence and trust in the life that he has brought once for all in his resurrection in this his world. Amen.